So we are going to begin. Anti-Semitism. By anti-Semitism this time, I mean Christian anti-Semitism that formulates itself, has its origins in the religion itself and in the relationship of Jews to the people that they live among in the European Christian nations. So we're really not going to refer to Muslim anti-Semitism at all. Anti-Semitism means hatred of Jews. People get very, oh, Muslims are Semites and all of that stuff. That's jargon. We know what it means. It's, it just means hatred of Jews. And, and it has existed for 2,000 years. And it still does. It feels like it's getting worse in some ways. And structurally through a church, through especially the Catholic Church, it is certainly getting much better. Sometimes nowadays, there's dog whistles. And by dog whistle, I mean you can, it, there is a statement made that has meaning, but only to the people who really can figure out the meaning. And I'm going to show you a few of those. But right now in the United States, there is continuous existence of white supremacist groups, which are tracked very, very heavily by the Southern Poverty Law Center. They are all over the country. They are online in disgusting, awful ways. I almost thought of bringing a list of some of the uh, white power, white supremacist, anti-Semitic websites and thought I just don't even want to go there to write their names. One is Stormfront, if you want to see. One is Jew Watch. There's, there's a lot of them. And they're grotesque. There's also vandalism that continues to happen. There was uh, the, I'm not going to say Iranian Holocaust denial, but certainly by the, by the leadership of Iran. So what we're going to do is we're going to discuss the historical reasons and, and the religious reasons or explanations. Reason might be the wrong word. So for example, sometimes you don't even realize that the word Jew gets used inappropriately because it comes as such a shock. Now, I first taught this class in 2013 in this form, and there was a chairwoman of a, of a commission in Florida. And her statement was, today's not the day to do it. We're here for someone's salary, not to be up here Jewing over somebody's pay, i.e., to Jew as a verb. Now, that was as recently as two years ago. My first acquaintance with that was when I was about 20 and I had my first job. And the person who used it was from Iowa, and I don't think she'd ever met a Jew before, and it was part of her vocabulary. And I had to look it up because I wasn't even sure what the verb was, which basically means to cheat. And lately, it's even, I'm, gonna, I'm getting chills as I say this, um, it's even being used politically as much as people do not want to say it out loud. That's what I mean by dog whistles. So for example, during a couple of the Republican debates, there was tremendous support for Israel being voiced by all of the candidates, probably all 16 of them. Whatever the topic was, our best ally, our best friend, we're always here for them, et cetera, et cetera. And Ann Coulter, who I will not say that I admire in any way, issued this tweet. How many effing Jews do these people think there are in the United States? Now, why did she say that? Because she assumed that the people on the debate stage were trying to win Jewish votes. Okay? But this was in writing on Twitter. And 
There was a lot of reaction to it. She attempted to back down. If you know who this woman is, she doesn't back down much. So she certainly did not have an apology. She tried to reword it and say, you know, well, they're talking about Israel and don't they have anything else to talk about and all of that stuff. But this is, in my opinion, bald-faced anti-Semitism, i.e. catering to this group of potentially powerful voting block. Okay? So that's how you do see it. So let's see what the definition of the word Jew is, just out of curiosity. The problem, of course, is that when I began researching this subject, I actually own a Webster's unabridged dictionary. It's this thick. Um, and I didn't go online because there was no such thing. So here's how Webster's defined Jew. And I think it's significant. It was the 80, 1986 version. I still own it, by the way. So it describes it as a person from the tribe of Judah. Fair enough. A person whose religion is Judaism. A verb meaning to cheat by sharp business practices. Now, as the dictionary grew in age, they put in parentheses, usually taken to be pejorative. P um, negative. Negative. A verb meaning to convince a seller by haggling to lower his price or to Jew down, which is what our friend the commissioner used it as. Yes, it is in Webster's. And, of course, an adjective to describe someone who is cheap. Okay, so as shocking as these are, because in our circles, I'm assuming, we don't hear the, name, the word used that way. But it has its origins, and that's where I, what I want to discuss. And the origins of these derogatory usages of the term Jew and the origins of anti-Semitism, I think, can be divided into three areas. They can be divided into a psychological realm, which basically refers to people that you don't know as the other, or there is the notion of the chosen people which gives a sort of separateness, then you can, there are religious and theological reasons for anti-Semitism. The Jews have been, were accused, and it states it in the New Testament, of killing Jesus. And following the New Testament, when Christianity was beginning, the first audience that, the, that Paul sent uh, effectively, but as they began to spread the religion, their first and most willing audience that they hoped for were the Jews, and the Jews refused to accept Jesus as the Messiah. So instead, it got turned and they became the enemy. And finally, the economic reasons, which stem from the... Um, the situation in the Middle Ages where Jews could not own property, they were ex excluded from guilds so they could not be, uh, have a trade like silver working or metal working, things like that. They only could be merchants or in money lending or banking or farms, but if they were on farms, they didn't own the property, they just, you know, they sort of rented it. Now there is evidence of anti-Jewish feeling, or at least resentment of the Jews in the pagan era, right? This is not a surprise to us. We had a little situation with Pharaoh, right? Pharaoh making the Jews slaves. Why? Who, who are they that they were so special? Well, they were special. They were unusual. On the other hand, as my grandson will say, Antiochus, was also resentful of them, of the Jews, in amongst the, the Greeks, because they did not pray to the proper gods. So they were the other. That's in pagan times. But really, you have to go to the New Testament to see how we got to today. 
I have written some things in your handouts, but we will discuss this to start with. In Matthew 26, it states, one of the 12 that refers to disciples, the one called Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests, that means the priests of the temple, and said, what are you willing to give me if I deliver Jesus over to you? Now, this is after, the, after Jesus went to the temple. He wrecked everything. It was Passover. And in theory, according to, um, according to the New Testament, the Sanhedrin sent out people to arrest Jesus. Remember that a few weeks ago? The first, the Sanhedrin tried him, according to the New Testament, and then he was turned over to the Romans. So Judah, they have Judas asking how much he's worth. So they gave him 30 pieces of silver, and from then on, Judas watched for an opportunity to hand him over. Now, there's two interesting pieces to this. First of all, you do have a traitor in your midst, but look at his name. Is that a coincidence? We can call it a coincidence, but he's still being paid to turn over who ultimately was to be called the Messiah. Okay, so a Jew will do anything for money. So that's one little piece. Then he was brought before the Sanhedrin, and we know about this. We know that the Sanhedrin was composed of the high priests. We know that they were in cahoots with the Romans. They had a lot of power. They did not want anybody messing with their power. So they basically said, we find you guilty of treason and we're turning you over to the Romans. At that point, I love this. Let's see if this works. The people who are listening to the tape will never be able to see this. Oops, that's not it. Let's see if I can get it to work at all. Are you saying that the Sanhedrin is a sect? According to the New Testament, he was arrested by the Sanhedrin and tried. The reason that's not possible, for many reasons, it was a Saturday, I think, it was Shabbat, it was um, Pesach, they would never meet at night. I mean, there were a lot of reasons why that's not true. Let me see, I got this to work before. Ah. Why not bring these prison walls down around you? Which of these two condemned men do you wish to set free? Jesus of Nazareth or Barabbas? Barabbas! His name has been a curse. This man is a criminal! Now we could watch this because the guy His hands are covered in blood. But one question. Everything has been fulfilled. Still remains. What? So this was a movie that came out a couple of years ago called Barabbas. And it was, it was on television. What was it about? If you recall, when the Romans were handed Jesus, uh, the guy in charge of the, pre the governor, basically, of Judea had to free somebody from being crucified. I want me to back up? I'll back up. Pontius Pilate was the governor. According to the New Testament, it was his... Um, his habit to have a number of prisoners and he would free one and then execute the rest. And so Pontius Pilate asked the crowd, as you saw from the previous thing, who should I free, Jesus or Barabbas? And the crowd yelled, Barabbas. Now, Barabbas was a petty thief. 
he probably had no reason to have the death penalty. However, he was freed. What the movie did was then, and then afterwards, here's what happened to Barabbas, and he became a Christian convert. Okay? But the movie is irrelevant because what happened was the Jews chose Barabbas to be freed, thereby condemning Jesus to death. The book of Matthew says, when Pilate saw that he could prevail nothing, but that there's a, there's a lot of tumult going on, he washed his hands before all of them after they chose Barabbas and said, I, Pontius Pilate, am innocent of the blood of Jesus. I, a Roman governor, had nothing to do with it because you guys picked Barabbas to be freed. And then the people answered from the New Testament, his blood be on us and on our children. Yes. Yes. John the twenty-third. Yes, because the bat in the Vatican Council in in nineteen sixty. Yes, because you can interpret this one of two ways. You can say his blood be on us and on our children, meaning all the people that are standing there, or his blood be on our children and all the generations going forward. Okay? Got that? Either, either the group that's there is taking responsibility, or the group that's there who will then be damned for all eternity and all of their children will be damned. and thereby responsible for the death of Jesus. What the Pope did is said, this does not pertain to current Jews. He, he didn't, he, di he interpreted it as a moment in history. And as far as the Pope or any other Christian religion is concerned, the Jews were responsible for the death of Jesus. The question is whether the, it was, I'm not stipulating that they were. I'm saying that it was a Roman method of execution. The Sanhedrin could never have met. The Jews didn't call for Barabbas. All of that is to make the Romans look good. Why? Because they wanted to convert the Romans. And this New Testament was compiled during the Roman Empire. The Jews said, I do not want anything to do with this man. He's not our Messiah. So the, the Christians, the new Christians, turned to the Romans and said, hey, want to believe in what we've got? So what they're doing now in this passage is they're letting the Romans off the hook and condemning the Jews. That, that much you understand? Okay, so his blood be on us and on our children could be my kids are standing with me and I am responsible or I'm responsible and so are the people in 2015. I mean, every Jew from thereafter. All right? And it wasn't, that's a big thing for us to have on our heads. That is the death of their savior. And it has to do with blood, which becomes the blood libel. Yes? I don't see them, I think in the Old Testament, too, like, you know, this needs to be father, and then you can say, so it's a few generations. Would you want to, so do you want to take that literally? So, I don't know, three generations? Or do you want to say then that's, you know, perpetuity? Well, that's true, but we have the opposite too, which is the inheritance of the land and things that are good that will happen to your your generations will be like multitudes. Um, I think that this was utilized; it was manipulated; it was utilized. But this is what it says: if you want to see the 
the four Gospels of the New Testament, Luke is the most anti-Semitic. That's the way I want to say it, Luke. Mm -hmm. Mark, John, Matthew, Luke. This is just not reasonable, but this is gives you a flavor because what those Gospels are doing is they're telling us about the death of Jesus. That it's just a, it's a story that they're telling in the New Testament. And this is the result. And I could end my lecture here and we could say, oh, I get it. Because everybody reads the New Testament in a Christian church. It's, again, how it's interpreted, and it's what the pastor or the priest or the pope emphasizes, right? So, so this is pretty bad stuff. And as, the, as Christianity grew, you can see my map better, I think, now that I turn the lights off. Um, as, the, as the Roman Empire grew, Christianity followed it. So that soon, sort of like the Muslims later on, wherever Paul went to, to preach about Jesus, so too went Christianity. And quite quickly, Christianity spread throughout the entire Roman Empire until basically the fourth century when Constantine declared it as the state religion. Now, by state religion, that means that anyone who's not, they weren't going to be executed, but they certainly have different rights than people who were Christian, who were baptized. So the enemy was the Jew. Church law institutionalized it because a Jew was a living refutation, a living um, objection, a, an insult constantly to the fact that Jesus was the Messiah. After all, the Jews are waiting for one. Here it is. If the Jews say it's him, we're all good. But here they're saying no, and that that angers them. So there are now, following it becoming the state religion, and by that I mean the religion of the empire, it becomes part of the work of the leadership of the empire and of the Christian church to promote the justification of violence towards the Jews. And laws against them and pulling up the, the thought that Jews during Passover are going to kill Jewish children, Christian children, and use their blood to make matzah. Now, as much as, as revolting as this is, I'll leave it, as revolting as this is, it caused havoc. Among, among Jewish sections of Christian villages. Entire neighborhoods were killed. The Bayless case was the most recent case in the 19, early 1900s when there was a, a Jewish man in Russia who was caught killing a Jewish boy, kidnapping, excuse me, a Christian boy, kidnapping in order to use his blood to make matzah. And two weeks ago, two weeks ago, an imam from, I believe, Lebanon got onto YouTube and said, the Jews use the blood of Christians. No, first he, he this was the blood libel coming out of his mouth. That was a different imam. That's, no, that was a, he, first he, that guy said it's not, it's not okay to make war against the Jews, and then he said, yes, it is okay to make war against the Jews. Different imam. <laughs> this imam was calling for killing them because they use the blood of Christian children. Yes? 
2015, see, still there. They do it, and that's that's as a sacrament, and um, this is related to the killing of Jesus, and that we are relishing in that, and so we're almost uh, retaliating, and therefore it's obviously, you know, something that has been believed, but it's because of the, his blood be on us and all our children, that the blood libel even existed. Okay? In fact, there was something called a passion play, and I don't, I don't know if you've ever seen what that is. It is a real-life reenactment of the last three days of Jesus's life involving entire villages, involving, and, and I have one thing that I want to show you that I believe still exists, um, but there is a very famous place called Oberammergau in uh, Germany. They have, a, every 10 years, they have a passion play, and they have, what it does is everybody in the village becomes one of the people, one of the Philistines or one of the Romans or, you know, it's a, it's a play, it's a real, it's reenacting and there is a way to reenact the crucifixion of Jesus without blaming Jews. And there have been calls, international calls, for them to stop because it riles everybody up. And by the way, blood Crucifixion, rising from the dead, happens on Easter. When is Easter? All comes into one beautiful, ugly merge. Okay? So people, the Jews would be in their homes during the Middle Ages preparing with their secret rituals and their unleavened bread and their whatever it was they did, and the Christians are getting all riled up because the Jews killed Jesus. It was not going to end well no matter what happened. So let's see if I can get this to work because I find the fact that this exists. New, exciting, and unforgettable experiences are waiting for you at the Great Passion Play in beautiful Eureka Springs, Arkansas. Witness the greatest story ever told, the final days of Jesus Christ's walk on earth. Your family and friends will be amazed at this majestic drama. From the exciting recreation of Jerusalem and the colorful spectacle of the marketplace to the soul-stirring crucifixion and the electrifying scene of Christ's ascension, the cast of 250 and the state-of-the-art lighting, sound effects, and original music will keep you spellbound. Greatpassionplay.org. I have not looked at it recently to see if they still spend the money to do such a thing in Arkansas. Okay, well, they may do a, my guess is that they do it, but it might be a smaller version. I mean, the things that you and I don't know that go on in other places is kind of remarkable. That this exists the next state down from us, remarkable. Does it exclude the Jews? I didn't stay through the whole thing to find out, you know, whether, whether it's sort of face-on anti-Semitic, but... My guess is they're going literally by the New Testament, and therefore, as such, it does not paint the Jews in such a good light. Okay? So, with that behind us, we move on to something else that's friendly, which is the Black Death. The Black Death was the bubonic plague, and that happened in the 
14th century, it took over Europe. People died. Just no, anyone who got it died. It killed 40 to 50 percent of the population of Europe. But the Jews didn't get it as often. Because how is bubonic plague, how is it transmitted? Rats, Rats. Yeah. with fleas, right? <laughs> Jews keep kosher. They don't leave things around. So rats would come to their homes less. I mean, there is a statistical correlation between how one, one's cleanliness, which is part of kashrut, versus, however, and there's a statistical correlation between the fact that the Jews were not getting it as much, and so therefore, they must be causing it. Oh. So Jews were, were accused of poisoning the wells because that's the only thing that everybody had in common. Now, why do I bring up that and the Black Death? Because it caused tremendous panic and attacks against Jewish communities. In uh, 1349, the entire Jewish community of Cologne was exterminated by angry Christians. In the same year, this is the, the 14th century, the citizens of Strasbourg murdered 2,000 Jews. In the 1980s, the Jews were accused of causing AIDS directly from this. Well, um, the, the long version is that we cooked it up in some lab and then passed it on in some nefarious way. But it's the identical libel. Although I don't know if Jews got AIDS as often, but there were definitely accusations of Jews causing AIDS. It was the natural outgrowth of poisoning the wells. And then we come to Martin Luther. Martin Luther was the, um, was the leader who protested that the church had too much power, the pope had too much power, and we should not have to pray through priests in order to talk to God. We should just be able to use our prayer book and talk directly. He was part of the Reformation. He was part of what began the Protestant movement. And he was very anti-Semitic. In that, I mean that that could be. I had not heard that. I think what what he is doing is he is very literally again reading the New Testament, and they're not accepting Jesus as our Messiah. So he wrote a treatise concerning the Jews and their lies. And these were his suggestions. I don't have to go over all of them. I, it may be in the, in the handout. He was German. And also, by the way, the, the religion that directly came from him, Lutheranism, is the most anti-Semitic of all the Protestant denominations. They know that the Jews are going to hell. It is a certainty, and it is not moderated in their um, churches. Okay, a lot of the other Protestant religions either leave it alone; they have not, they don't pursue the subject at all, or in evangelicals they have the opposite, they want to save us and, and baptize us. Um, I have a friend, we had a friend in college who was Lutheran from Milwaukee, outside Milwaukee, a lot of Lutherans in Wisconsin, and um, we would get a Christmas card every year, 
and it would underline, you know, the birth of the Savior, literally. And he was a fraternity brother of my husband. So I think he was conflicted because he was friends with us, but someplace in his heart he knew we were going to hell, and it really bothered him. I think because he liked us and he was trying to do us a favor and okay so that's um, the Martin Luther part now let's go to another stereotype the Jews as wealthy or sneaky or crooked that comes from church law as well and follow the convoluted um, way it evolved. In the European countries, as I said, Jews were not allowed to own land. They were not allowed to be in guilds, which are like trade unions. And Christians were not allowed to loan money to other Christians for money. That was for interest. That was usury. But Christians could borrow money from Jews. And that was one of the few um, money-making jobs that really Jews could do. Besides banking, they were in the banking industry, they were in the merchant industry, which was really good, especially in the uh, Muslim empire, which is at the same time, because they could go from city to city and there were Jewish uh, communities and there was a lot of trade going on. And, you know, they got quite rich. There were very wealthy Jewish merchants in Italy, for example. So um, I am a Christian, and I go to a, a Jewish man, money lender, for a loan. And he said, I'm going to charge you 1%. And the Christian says, fine, takes his money. And then it comes due. And he doesn't pay back the Jewish guy. The Jewish guy says, you know, I'm going to have to raise my interest rates because you're not paying me back. OK, take it to court force the Christian to pay you back. You try that in a Christian court. The courts always ruled on the side of the Christian, which meant the Jewish person was left sort of holding the bag and could not really have a business unless their interest rates might go up in order to make a living. It was damned if you do, damned if you do. That's the situation the Jews found themselves in. Not every human being was a money lender, but there were some, and they got a reputation. And William Shakespeare, who we call, you know, how dare you have written Shylock? You know what, it was part of his times. I don't forgive him. It is a very stereotypical money-lending portrait of Shylock. But I don't think he, he was just representing what he knew, what went on in, in 16th century England. So if you look at it that way, you know, we wouldn't expect somebody necessarily to go against what their culture was saying. I don't, it, it wasn't, we see it. For them, it wasn't an issue, it was just a character. However, what it has evolved into is stereotypes uh, that Jews are brilliant with money, right? And here they are, running the world. The current chair of the Fed is Janet Yellen. Rats. <laughs> okay, so I, not that I'm not proud of these people, but I sort of want to go, okay, nothing to see here, because that's a dog whistle to somebody who's anti-Semitic. These people are Jewish. Ben Bernanke, Greenspan, I don't think cares about his religion, but that's what he is. Absolutely. Absolutely. And what evolved from, from that concept as 
Christ killers, merciless monsters, brilliant with money, running all of the banks in the world. The white supremacists, of course, were in luck and they got to use that as something. But during the Enlightenment, just when you would think that all of uh, mankind was the, the theory of Voltaire, the theory of what Thomas Jefferson gleaned was that all men were created equal. And the Jews were allowed to assimilate into Jewish society. Excuse me. You do it every, I'm, I'm doing it every time. Please tell, tell me when I do that. <laughs> um, however, simultaneous to the Enlightenment was the development of a concept of a Jewish world conspiracy. I've given you several pages in your handout about the master thesis, which was called the Protocols of the Elders of Zion. That set the tone in the middle of the 19th century for modern day white supremacists, Jews controlling the media, Jews having basically um, a plot to take over the world. So I was putting together my presentation last night and I thought, I hear a lot that you can't get the protocols of the elders of Zion in Germany. You know, Germany still has very, very strict anti-Semitism laws against anti-Semitism. If you say, and actually so does France, they just, um, they just jailed somebody for uh, being anti-Semitic in his, in his workplace. However, guess what I looked on? I just went to Amazon. So I forgive the way that I have put this, but I want to prove to you that it was Amazon and I took a screenshot and that I could buy that and it, it wouldn't cost me much, but it would cost me less on my Kindle because there's no copyright, so I could get it for nothing on my Kindle if I want. And the library has it and I'm unnerved to think who else has it and has bought it from Amazon because it could be studied, but who would, I, you know, it's, it's, you sort of do, but you know, then, then you'd go to Amazon.Australia. I mean, there, it's, it's everywhere. So this is, I, I took that screenshot yesterday and there's different versions, different publishers. Okay. So besides the Kindle one. And so what happens sometimes is we make fun of ourselves. And this one is a good one. The elders of Zion reunited. Well, I was playing a little golf, then I took over the world media and the banks. So Morris, what have you been up to? We can sort of laugh until it comes from, and this is just, this is a cartoon. However, there are many, many, many people who believe it. They also believe that the Jews control foreign policy, which we will get to in a minute. But that's part of the Zionist control, the elders of Zion controlling the world. So, as Millie brought up, how did the Pope deal with this? At the Second Vatican Council, it was Pope Paul VI in the mid-60s, here's how he handled that passage. True, the Jewish authorities and those who followed their lead pressed for the death of Jesus. Now that he's taking from the New Testament. Still, what happened in his passion, which is the crucifixion, cannot be charged against all Jews then alive, nor against Jews today. So what he did was he narrowed down the scope of blame to a few Jews then. 
although the church is the new people of God. We're not going to, you know, deny that. The Jews should not be presented as rejected by God or accursed by God. Now, that was huge. That was huge. The problem was, not to be a Debbie Downer, that until that moment, every catechism said that the Jews had killed Jesus. So it was in people's minds until all of the books were changed and the teachings were changed and everything was changed post-1965 for the Catholic Church. Okay, not for the Protestant Church. As I said, Methodists don't pay attention so much. Lutherans, very literal with the Bible. Evangelicals, we have to reach out to our friends, the Jews, and show them the way. Hence the word evangelical. I mean, they're doing that for everybody. Okay? But this was huge. It's huge for us in the, in, in the sense of Catholicism. It's huge for us in the sense that the leadership of the Catholic Church continued it. Nobody backtracked on it. It was, it was momentous in the history of the church-Jewish relations. But it was only the Catholic Church. Yes? I used to Um, the reason evangelicals are pro-Israel is that it says in Revelations that there has to be a, an ingathering of all of the Jews to Israel in order for the second coming of Jesus. So Israel has to exist in order for Jesus to come. Okay? So we certainly don't want to destroy that. It's destroy Israel and the more Jews that go there that more we can hasten that along. Now I'm going to actually play a clip for you in a few minutes that's a little different than that um, that scares me slightly more. But the state I would say of Christian Jewish relations is overall good in the United States. I think for example do you know up until the 50s Jews weren't allowed in Ivy League colleges, right? They weren't allowed almost until today, certainly in my day, into certain uh, country clubs. And then there's Kenilworth. Exactly. Exactly. So, so that's an evolution, really. Yes. However, the Internet has been a just a luscious breeding ground for any kind of hatred that you could imagine. Yeah. You, you want to find somebody that believes in your crazy views, you can find them. Yes? I'm not, I'm, I don't know. I've never really thought about that. I think, um, you know, quotas have changed, obviously. There's not a Jewish quota anymore. They're um, into the United States. It's a, it, they're right. So, so they don't, in theory, judge by religion when one comes into the United States. Right. I, I think the acceptance of Jews, particularly in the northern states, the acceptance of Jews into white society, white meaning, um, the white meaning the way the Nazis would use the term white, um, ha has been pretty good. But there is, there are, there are still some strains underneath, you know, and we hear it um, I'm not going to, uh, I, I don't want to be political, so let's just say this. It never bothered me when anybody said Merry Christmas to me. It never bothered, and I'm also not advocating for everybody to say Happy Holidays to me because I, you know, feel hurt. But when that all comes up, there's a Christian 
um, concept, fervor, platform, and then there's the other. And the implication is that why are we saying happy holidays? It's because of the other, because we're supposed to be nice to them. It, it certainly is. And, you know, as far as I'm concerned, every religion has the right to be every religion, right? And if they have their holiday, Christians have their holiday, and they put a crutch in front of sunset, yay! You know, I, I, it's none of my business. So, uh, but, but this artificial war on Christmas, not to, I'm not even being political, I'm just saying it has potential consequences for the people who do not celebrate Christmas because it separates us once again. So we can all go back to Merry Christmas, I don't care. I just don't want them starting to talk about the fact that somebody wants to take their crutch away. Okay, it's a very slippery slope. It's very, very dangerous. So, so we have Jews controlling, let's say, foreign policy. Yes, that one is gross. That is the United States and a Jew pretty much doing a blood libel on an Arab child. It's a, this is a um, Palestinian newspaper. And that was after the Intifada, during the Intifada. Okay, so that's, that's the blood libel in 2002. And you also have the Jews controlling the media. And there they all are. So I'm studying this picture, and I'm looking at all of them and going, yes, he's Jewish, yes, he's Jewish, yes, he's Jewish. And then I get to Rupert Murdoch. <laughs> and I go, wait, I, I would know, I would think. And I began researching it. And on everything that is a white supremacist website, they say his mother was Jewish that her name was Elizabeth Green, and everybody knows that the name Green, G-R-E-E-N-E, -E -E, they're, they're Australian, doesn't matter. The name Green is Jewish, and therefore he is Jewish, and he's just controlling the world, and it's obvious why. But I don't think she's, he was Jewish. I don't think his mother was Jewish. But fascinating, huh? Yep. So if you look up, if you Google, what, is Rupert Murdoch Jewish, the places that you'll see that he probably is are white supremacist websites. I just Googled Rupert Murdoch Jewish. It didn't really say. It does, he doesn't define himself Christian or otherwise. There was no, there was nothing. I looked in Wikipedia. It said his mother's name. It didn't say she was Jewish. Jewish and rich, according to, according to these websites. I mean, that's, okay, so yeah, this was an interesting thing, and there they all are, and good for them. Okay, so now I want to show you some gross stuff that's on the internet. This guy... I don't even know who he is, but anyway, oops, I did, it, I did it again. Let's see if I can go back and make him work. I'll get it to work. Who owns the media? This is a question that has now come to the fore with a recent statement by Oliver Stone, who said that Jews dominate the media. Stone pointed out that because of this domination, public discourse on crucial issues that face our nation is being suppressed. But after intense pressure from the Jewish community, who act as America's thought police, Oliver Stone apologized and retracted his statement. But was Oliver Stone right or was he wrong? 
I was raised as a Jew in an upper middle class synagogue, and we all knew who owned the media. In fact, we as Jews were proud of it. Let's stop him. Okay. He's a he's a wacko. He makes like he makes YouTube videos. Yeah, Borat. Except he's he's sort of Borat. What no was a really good fictionalized character. Yeah, this guy no, is genuinely crazy. He did. Yes. And now what he does on YouTube is he. Um, I don't remember how I found him. You know, if you're doing research on anti-Semitism or you put in the word Jew, it can be very problematic. You can find things you really don't want to find. So... Right. No. Well, and when he speaks, whatever, where, what, what country is he from? He's, he's, whatever his cra crazy thing is, when he speaks that language, it's Hebrew. I don't know if you knew that, to go back and listen to Borat, and the whole conversation is in Hebrew. And he's, by the way, an Orthodox Jew. So, um, again, good for him. And he did, a, he did a lot of mockery in that, actually, about that. He's, uh, I like him. Anyway, this is what was happening during the war against Iraq. Who controls foreign policy? Well, it's George Bush, okay? Okay, so it's George, it's George Bush and it is it, us telling him what to do and how to do it with the rest of the world saying no. He's not listening. So that, you know, shows up also. That's about, I think it was in the, it was, oh, I, I don't remember. It was an American paper right after, when, when we were invading Iraq. Oh yes. Oh yes, she said it was it was Israeli and Jewish. Yes, she did. Exactly. Now, it it is so mind-boggling to us to hear things like that. Netanyahu went after her. Everybody went after her. But it's all of a pattern. You see, it's all the same theme, and it has its origins. So what I want to show you here from the internet is that I got myself on a mailing list on Facebook called They Can't. And what They Can't is, is they, it was a grassroots organization designed to go to things that are posted online that are anti-Semitic and to report them to YouTube for hateful content and get it down. This is what happens. So when you go back and you say, oh, I want to see this, this video has been removed as a violation of YouTube policy. And I also want to say that Israel is, whatever, whatever, um, I'm showing you that, that there is an organization that is telling all of us to go to YouTube for a particular video or a particular thing, then you go, when you get to YouTube, you click hate speech, and then YouTube takes it down. It's probably a number of people, but then they look. And what, um, what Israel is trying to do now, and this was in this week's Times of Israel, is form an app with the help of, of Google and Facebook, even though they're not sure that they're going to participate, 
to literally look for certain words to clobber social media anti-Semitism or anti-Israel before it makes its way out into the, before it goes viral. So they literally hired all of these people, you know, within the last couple of weeks to really set up. I, it's like a, an electronic Hasbara department, you know, because we really have to go to that in order to do this. Yes. Right. Correct. You couldn't win on either end. Correct. And it all comes from the same thing. Because the communist thing was a world domination thing. All right, so there's, there's one more thing I want to play for you. Um, I, I don't want to get political here again. But she put her, well, she got a lot of publicity for this. This is Michelle Bachman. This is Washington Watch with Tony Perkins, your daily voice in Washington, D.C. on the issues of faith, family, and freedom. And now, here's your host, Family Research Council President, Tony Perkins. Welcome to Washington Watch. Coming up okay. on this November 4th edition as we continue to, to broadcast so from Jerusalem. A huge victory for voters in Houston, Texas. Okay, as over we'll, we'll stop them. Um, basically, here's what she said. We recognize the shortness of the... Here's what happened. A whole a bunch of um, uh, Tea Party kind of people and, and uh, born-again Christians went on a tour of Israel right during the height of... No, a month ago during a lot of a lot of the chaos there and they went to everywhere and they went to the, the, all the sites of Jesus and they were all very very moved and what Michelle Bachman said at the end of her interview was we recognize the shortness of the hour which in her mind means the end of time the end of the world and that's why we as a remnant we Christians want to be faithful in these days and do what it is that the Holy Spirit is speaking to each of us and to help bring in as many as we can to Christianity, even among the Jews, and share Jesus Christ with everyone because he's coming again. Uh-huh. Now you say ooh, and the internet went, oh! They just went crazy. And I can play it for you. I'm not able to do it with this equipment. But basically, yes, that's what she's saying in a very passionate, religious way. She wants everybody saved because it's very clear to her that end times are coming. <coughs> right? So that was uh, two weeks ago when she got... They were broadcasting, by the way, from Israel. Um, convert the Jews, from her standpoint, she wants to convert the Jews. Yeah. But what was shocking about this was that it's never stated out loud. It's never... I mean, part of her evangelical reach, you know, is she sees the signal that Jesus is coming back and she wants to convert all the non-believers. That's us. Yes. Yes. It's it's because she doesn't want us to go to hell. And, and she this was broadcast from Israel. So what she was is she was feeling the spirit of where Jesus had been and walked in his footsteps and gone to Galilee and gone to Jerusalem, etc. And just was overwhelmed spiritually and said very clearly, um, things are going badly here because there were a lot of stabbings. End of times are coming. We need everybody to believe in Jesus. But if we don't convert Jesus, it's still coming. No. She want, it's to save us. Yes. So now, one of the last things I would say to you is what is BDS? 
And is being anti-Israel the same as being anti-Semitic? I am posing the question. I am posing the question. Some people would say absolutely yes because they don't pick on anybody else like they do Israel. Some people would say no, it's a Palestinian thing. But you have to be real, real wary now because this movement is very big and getting bigger and we just have to certainly oppose it but watch very carefully. But here's how I want to end. I want to end with that. Because the Pope continues the relationship of the Catholic Church with the Jews. This is Rabbi Skorka, who is the uh, Chancellor of the Seminary in Argentina. Seminario Rabinico. Yes, Latino Americano, which is a Masorti um, seminary, and he's BFF with the Pope. They were they were um, clergy together in Buenos Aires, and they wrote a book together, and they're very good friends. So. Let's say that that's what's going to happen and that he, you know, as a Christian leader, as a Catholic leader, can say the Jews are our brothers and can have some influence on the haters. Okay, so let's, let's leave it at something somewhat uplifting. It's better than how we left it. Uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> There's, yeah. there's no, good future there. no, and and this is unpleasant on a, in a lot of ways too. And I, I would tell you to donate to the Southern Poverty Law Center, who are they are the best at tracking all the white supremacist organizations. They they are they're um, they've been in existence for a really long time, but they know every hate group that's on the internet. They know where they live, they know. There's a lot of white supremacist groups in Illinois, which would be fine. They can also live and be well, except they have weapons. And so it's much more dangerous now. Much more dangerous, yes. Yeah. So it's a breeding ground. So just look for good things. Look for cartoons and kittens on the, on the internet. So thank you for coming. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Thank you.